Well, hi. Uh, my name is Dan. I'm uh, probably not the familiar face you're used to, uh, but I'm a good friend of Calvary, one of the missionaries uh, here working in the city, uh, very much supported by your church, by your prayers. Um, actually, before I, I get into things this morning, I do want to thank you for praying uh, for, for those of you who are praying for us and our family, and particularly my daughter, Noemi, uh, in my prayer letters and, and, and things. I know, you've been, I know it's been on your prayer list as a church, and um, she's getting a little bit better, um, and I guess we'll find out this week as uh, school's starting up again how she's doing, but continue to keep her in your prayer. Um, she's had this kind of ongoing discomfort and sickness since October and has missed a substantial amount of school over it. So, so please just keep her in our prayer. Our family went through a lot of changes and transitions this summer with moving and new schools and everything, and we think that might be some of what's happened to her neurological and immune system. So if you could just keep her into prayer that we are praying that uh, uh, school might go a little bit what, uh, better as we get into this week. So thank you uh, so much for your prayer. Um, Today we're, in, we're going to be looking at a couple of different chapters in Ecclesiastes. I was so excited that you guys are going through Ecclesiastes. Uh, when I pastored the church across the street, uh, OCBC, Ecclesiastes was the, la uh, the second to last sermon series uh, that I preached. And it's become one of my favorite books of the Bible. If not, I don't know. It's hard to tell, you know. But uh, particularly because I, I really believe that Ecclesiastes is the most joy-inducing, life-affirming literature ever written. And it, it's such a, that seems shocking to us because kind of the, the characteristic or the stereotype of the book of Ecclesiastes is that it's a very nihilistic book. And I think that's been a very, probably not a, a correct way to read it. I, I truly believe it is joy-inducing and life-affirming. And maybe we need that as we start uh, this new year uh, 2024, and you know, it's the type of year where we're, we're trying to, uh, I just got out of holidays, right? We all just got out of the holiday season, and tomorrow, you know, my, as I just said, my kids will be going back to school, probably some of you are in the same boat, I see a lot of kids around here, and, um, and it's also like, I don't know, you probably worked over the holidays, but if you're like me, I worked a little bit over the holidays, but I didn't think about work over the holidays, you know? And now I'm kind of like, okay, now I better get serious again. <laughs> it's, it's January. And the passages, the, the chapters we're looking at this morning in Ecclesiastes, oh great, 9, 10, and into 11, uh, we'll, get, we'll get through. Um, Solomon's talking about work. In fact, if you can put the verse up, this next verse, this is, this is the theme for this morning. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. Now, you've got to understand, he's not saying you're all going to hell. He's saying that at some point, Sheol was the place of the dead, and death is undefeated, except for one. It's not undefeated. It had one lost, Jesus. But pretty much besides Jesus, we've all, we all are going to face death unless the Lord returns and, and we're brought into his presence. He's basically saying, now is the time for living. Now is the time for work. Whatever your hand finds it to do. And, and when I say work here, I'm not just talking about our vocation. It could be any, uh, any, anything that we, what, what he says, whatever your hand finds to do, whether be it parenting, be it your job, be it 
your ministry or what the Lord has given you tasks to do, be it prayer, be it evangelism? What gets you going in the morning? What keeps you going when it's hard? That's what his focus is going to be on these couple of chapters. And um, a couple of things about these couple of chapters. These are some of the chapters that really uh, challenged my thinking in the book of Ecclesiastes. Because, you know, that traditional interpretation, I think the NIV is the one that really brought it, that meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. You've heard that? Well, if, if that's true and that's the message of the book, that everything is meaningless, these chapters make absolutely no sense. Because there's a whole part of the book of Ecclesiastes that talk about how do we approach life. And if, if everything's meaningless, then it doesn't matter how we approach life. So when you get to these, this second part, this, this you know, from actually from like chapter 4 on, and he's talking about life, and he's talking about how to live it, it you know, it can't mean that everything is meaningless, and I'm sure Matt's, I don't think that's the take Matt's been taking, Pastor Matt's been taking on it. When I preached it, I spoke about that word hebel, uh, the word in the Hebrew, breath, that there's a breathiness of life, not a meaninglessness, but a breathiness. And what that means is, like, go outside today after the service and just go, ha, ah. and what do you see? Like in Canada, we get a, and in Canada, we get this great visual illustration of this breathiness of life. What does it mean that life's a breath? Well, it means it's a vapor that comes for a while and then, and then dissipates. That there's a, there's a brevity to life, right? And that, that can mean, if, if you think there's a brevity to life, we really understand life's brevity. Well, yeah, if you're a nihilist, it can mean that Life is meaningless because it'll just be short and we're all going to Sheol anyway. I think the, the message of the book is something completely different. If life is short, that means that every moment matters. Right? That same truth, life is short, can mean two different things depending on how you're receiving that truth from the hand of God. If life's a breath, yes, it's meaningless because it'll be gone tomorrow. But if life's a breath, that means every moment matters if it's to be received as a gift from God. That will change your life. That will change your outlook. Secondly, what it means life is a breath means that you go outside and you go, and you look at it and you can't make sense of it. That's part of the message of this book. And in fact, if you try to contain that breath, if you try to capture it and hold on to it and try to dissect it, the more you try to do that, the more elusive it is. Right? So you can't, the point of breath is not to like shepherd it. That's, that's the term he uses, chasing after the wind, shepherding the wind. The point of the breath is not to try to contain it and try to, the point of the breath is to go, it's beautiful. It's beautiful, isn't it? Don't you love it? Particularly when you're a kid, you walk outside and you start seeing your breath and you go, that's really pretty. God is making all things, all parts of this breath beautiful in his time. That's the point of the book. Life's short, so it has meaning. Life's perplexing, so it's beautiful. It's a great book, isn't it? And so now we get to this idea of work. 
And here's the, the second thing that we, we just kind of want to look at as we approach this is that when you've been thinking about work, this, this is how, this is how the, I'm, an, I'm an optimist by nature, by temperament. So I just will run into things blindly because I just think things are going to work out. That's, I don't think Solomon's an optimist. He's a realist. And what he likes to do is he likes to take a topic and then kind of look at it from every angle. And to be honest, he usually leads with all the things that can go wrong. That's important for us. Because as we're receiving life as a gift, as we're receiving all things from the hand of God in its beauty, we're going to run into some perplexing and distressing episodes, aren't we? That's life. And Solomon wants to prepare us for life. So one of the things about this, this is wisdom literature, and so there's a danger here for me preaching this morning. The danger is that I just give you all the answers. That's not what we're supposed to do with wisdom literature. You're not supposed to have some dude up on a stage telling you all the answers to life. For wisdom literature in the scripture, what you're to do is hit those obstacles in life and have them drive you back to the promises of God and drive you back to the truthfulness of God's word and then try to wrestle with God. We are of those who wrestle with God. And some of the things that he's going to be sharing this morning are things that we need to wrestle with. And just hearing me proclaim them from a stage is not enough to let them sink into your heart. In fact, the best way to internalize these things, I mean, I wish I would have had this, but the best way is to have, your, have parents who've internalized these things and have shared this wisdom with you as you've been growing. I didn't really have that. My parents weren't Christians. So now I'm trying to internalize these things, wrestle with these things, so I can just live with my kids and raise them up in it. Thank you for mentors, big brothers, big sisters, and the ministry that you have. Because this is lived theology in Ecclesiastes. So those are a couple preliminary things. One more preliminary thing as we approach this topic of work. I just, I, it needs to be said at this point because I don't know who's here. So if you can go up to the next slide. Here, here, here's what we need to do. Set, we need to set our works into the context of our salvation. And this was the verse that I preached on, really focused on the last time I was here. Uh, Titus. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want to insist on these things, so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. It's, it's important to set our works in context here. Because I, my, my, the one thing my dad did teach me, and I'm thankful for, is he taught me, like, Dan, if you want something in life, you've got to work for it. He taught me the value of hard work. But what I did was, when I first heard the gospel, I applied that principle to my salvation. So that if I wanted something in life or in the afterlife, I needed to work for it. And yet, that is the truth that Paul's proclaiming here. And that's the truth of the gospel that's being proclaimed to us. He saved us not according to our goodness and the works that we have done, 
but he saved us by his work. The victory has been completed in Christ. And so you need to hear this. Uh, God and Christ are not, they're not, they're not, they're not, they're not going to embrace you on the basis of your performance for them. They're going to embrace you on the basis of what his son has done for you. Salvation is a gift of free grace. And if you're here today and you've turned off God because you just thought he was another demanding father, exacting perfection from you, none of us can attain that. None of us in ourselves could please a God like that. But God, without lessening his standard at all of his holiness and perfection, has sent his son into this world that he, his son himself might live a life that we could not live and died a death in our place so that by his good work, he might justify, make us, count us as righteous. So rest, rest. A lot of Ecclesiastes' message is receive and rest in the Lord. That's salvation. To receive and to rest and to trust in what Christ has done for you. Now that does not end there. It, 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 that, that jettisons and motivates us into, toward good works. That's the message of Titus. That those who have come to trust in God might devote themselves into a lifestyle of good occupation, good work. So it, so it moves us into the future. So, so first, to set the, this idea of why do I work, set it in the context of the gospel. Well, that's the first thing. Let's move into, let's look into the breath. That's what we're going to do. We're going to look into the breath. There's a lot here. I'm going to go, there's nuggets. And some of them, I, I made like a ledger of pros and cons, but that's, you know, that's artificial. That's what I put up. But it's really, it's these nuggets. He just wants to look at these different facets of the blessing. So he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. But now let's look into the messiness of the breath and the perplexingness of life. Because he says a number of things. And, and this, this is wisdom. We want to shore ourselves for this. So are you ready? Because there's going to be some hard stuff here we're going to wrestle with, okay? So the first thing, and, and I put this as a reason why I might not get out of bed in the morning. There's a lot of reasons. I hit life, and it's hard. And the first thing he says is uh, reasons why you might give up. Uh, number one, you might fail. You might fail. He says Ecclesiastes 9.11. And so he's, these are little pearls that he's out of that big idea of work hard with all your might, then he goes, okay, here's what might happen. Again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man doesn't know his time. Like fish that are taken in the evil net, and like birds that are caught in the snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. That's motivating, eh? You could be the best, the smartest, the brightest, the fastest, the strongest, and you still may fail. And doesn't that bother us? Isn't, isn't that the time where you just say, why am I doing this? Why, 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 why get up again and go out and do it? I'm not seeing the fruit of the labor and the effort that I'm putting in. And I know I'm more competent and capable than the people around me. And yet I seem to hit walls and they seem to succeed. 
On the flip side, you know, maybe I'm not the smartest or the fastest or the brightest. And guess what? Sometimes I'll win. Actually, that does help me get out of bed. <laughs> He's just saying, like, listen, work hard. Do, do, do all with your hands. Whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your might. But that doesn't guarantee the result that you might think it will. And there's a couple things I was thinking in here. Number one, he says this. He says, time and chance happen to them all. And that time and chance happen to them all, them all is really important. Because sometimes as Christians, and, and sometimes implicitly, and sometimes explicitly, we get this idea that because we're a Christian, the Lord is going to bless the work of our hand. That because we're a Christian, if I'm, if I'm seeking the Lord, if I'm doing what he's called me to do, then I will always achieve victory. And you can actually explicitly, you could go to a church this morning some, somewhere, and you could explicitly get that message that if you're doing all things, if you're doing everything right, you're going to succeed. But Solomon's wiser than that. See, if we understood that, that would be like shepherding the breath. That would be like, I've got life figured out. I put input A in, and I get, you know, I get B. And Solomon's saying, like, that doesn't always work that way. Life doesn't always work that way. But as a pastor, I think we could tell you, these, this, these are the sorts of things that bring people into our offices for counseling. Because they, they get to a point in life, they said, I've done everything right. I've done everything right, and I'm still hitting the wall. I've done everything right, and I'm still not succeeding. I've done everything right. And parents, right? As parents, we can feel that. Or, or, or as parents, we can look the other way. My, my kid's in trouble. My, my kid's not succeeding. My kid's not thriving. I must be doing something wrong. Definitely, we can go that way, too. And someone's saying, like, listen... Success is not guaranteed, even if you were the fastest, the brightest, the strongest, the hardest working. It's not guaranteed. Time and chance happen to us all. That's the first part of the breath we have to wrestle with. The second part of the breath we have to wrestle with. I put, no one may listen to me, but actually as you read, it's worse. As people do listen to you, but you get none of the credit. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say some things, and some of you are going to be like, yep, that's my workplace. Not saying that that's what happened there, but <laughs> I love this. And he tells a story. Listen, I've seen this example of wisdom under the sun, verse 13. I've seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was this little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. All right? You hear this story, right? Little tiny town, and they're going to get weight. They're going to get blasted off the face of the earth. And there was this Poor man, poor but wise. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. What a great story, the end. And he goes on to say, yet no one remembered that poor man. No one remembered him. Great idea, brought about the results, delivered the city, and got no credit. Got no credit. No one remembered that poor man. I say wisdom is better than might, although the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. 
The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Well, thank goodness for this poor wise man. He saved the city and everyone despised it for him and no one remembered him. Listen, if you're approaching your job because you want the acclaim, you might get it. You might not. Others might take credit for your work. That's life. You came up with a great idea to save your company money and your boss submits the proposal with his name on it rather than yours. Let me ask you, in that situation, are you motivated to keep working hard? Will your hand continue to work with all its might? You saved the company. <laughs> your whispering at the bottom of the hierarchy actually affected change. Praise the Lord. Yet, more than all the shouting in the boardrooms, but you actually accomplished something. But no one gives you credit. Are you still going to get out of bed the next day? And you might say, but that's not fair. And Solomon says, yeah, that's life. This is a great message, eh? <laughs> All right, another thing you might, you might hit when you're, you're, you're hitting the perplexity of life and work is that you have a great idea. Everybody sees it's a great idea. And others take it because you have to collaborate with others and they mess it up. It might be getting credit, no credit for a good idea that works. Imagine if by some miracle of providence you actually had one good, true, virtuous, world-altering idea, and the reality is to bring your idea to fruition, you have to submit the idea to others who will add to it, tweak it, subtract from it, and execute it. Trade-offs are made, compromises reached. And Solomon talks about how you can have this great idea, but someone else's little foolishness might come in and ruin the whole thing. So, verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. <laughs> right, a little fly in that ointment can ruin the whole thing. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's to the left. I was not making a political statement there. <laughs> I've heard it in that context. But just talking about that tug of war that you have as you're collaborating with others. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone, he's a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, don't leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. So there's an error that I've seen under the sun, as if it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. You have this great idea. You've worked hard. You've brought it. Now you're sharing it with others. And a little bit of folly makes the whole thing to ruin. And I really love that second, that second thing he talks about. It could be its own thing. Call it the Michael Scott problem. If you've seen The Office, it's also called the Peter Principle. It's the idea that often... You know, you're really good at the job you do. Michael Scott, he was a character in a sitcom called The Office. He actually, it was really interesting because sometimes they would show him when he would do sales. He actually was a good salesman. But at some point, they promoted him to manager. And he's terrible. He is the worst. Good salesman, terrible manager. He's a, he's a, he's a fool on a, on a high horse. And everybody who works on him knows he's a fool. 
And they got princes working underneath them. And anything they do comes to nothing and comes to ruin because of his foolishness as a manager. Anybody had a job like that? <laughs> Kenny? No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> Why bother trying? I mean, that is so demotivating, isn't it? You go to work, you work hard, you put your hand, and then you get, you, you've, you've, you've got to share it with others, coworkers, your manager, and just the foolishness begins messing it up. Man, it begins to hurt your pride, too. I love, I love where Solomon goes next. Because, like I said, I'm an optimist. I don't think like this, but Solomon, he's a realist. Listen to what he says in verse 8. <laughs> I might get hurt. I might actually harm myself by getting out of bed. This is the, this is the thought that probably uh, you know, keeps people under the covers. He says, He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one doesn't sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before its charms, it's no advantage to the charmer. There's a proverb that's kind of like this, that the fool lays the trap, or the fool lays the trap and falls into it. He's not talking about somebody who's, in this passage, he's not talking about someone who's, you know, trying to do harm to others. He's talking about guys just trying to do a job. You know, I tear down this wall. I do a renovation, and I tear down the wall, and there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a snake behind the wall, and he bites me. I dig a pit, and as I'm walking, I just fall into it. And, and he's just saying, like, listen, a reality of life is you might get hurt. You get out of bed, you're taking a risk. It's a dangerous thing, Frodo Baggins, you know, leaving your front door. You never know where that road is going to lead you. Solomon is trying to, here's what Solomon's doing. He's a good father trying to teach his kids that life is pain. And life is hard. Now, now set in the whole context of Ecclesiastes, but thankfully life is short. <laughs> I mean, isn't that, it's a blessing that life is short because life is so hard. And, and whatever situation you're in, if you're in one of these terrible situations, guess what? Wait just a second. Everything changes. All of life is transitory. There's good news here for those who are in hard situations. The last thing is, I can do everything right and I can still mess it up by my words. The words of a man's... The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies his words, though no man knows what it is to be, and who can tell him what will come after him? James says it's very difficult, impossible even, to control the tongue. You can do everything right, you can do a good job, and a flippant word can mess the whole thing up. And, and he gives a conclusion, kind of a preliminary conclusion in verse 15. The toil of a fool wearies him, and he doesn't know his way into the city. It's a big theme in Ecclesiastes. It's just this idea that we're kind of wandering around, and we don't know what is from the hand of God, and we don't know what's going to come next, and we don't know, we don't actually, we can see the breath, but we don't actually know God's purposes in the breath at all times. And that's the hard thing about life. 
and why it's hard to get out of bed. Now Solomon, he, there's, there's a couple other things he, he'll share with us of why we might want to get out of bed in the morning. I hope we'll, we'll turn some of this around. And to be honest, uh, even them are not very compelling. He'll, he'll get to some compelling things at the end. But the next one is actually interesting. People, here, here's a reason to get out of bed in the morning, is that people depend on you. <laughs> that, that idea of, and it hit me with my brother. My brother was going through a time of depression, and he really couldn't do much, except for he would get out of bed and do, he, he'd go to work for an hour. He had a job at which he just needed to go to uh, like this bar and kind of close up. And he would just, that was the hour he got out of bed. And it hit me as I was reflecting on that and went out, I went out to see him and was working with him. And it hit me that idea of, I never connected that idea of responsibility because he, couldn't, he had no responsiveness to anything else. But because somebody put responsibility on him, he had the ability to respond. I never had thought about those words in that way before. But Solomon is saying, like, one way to get out of bed is just recognize there's people who depend upon you. Woe to you, O land, verse 16 of, of chapter 10, verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your child is a king. No, sorry. <laughs> when your king is a child. <laughs> Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is a son of nobility. Your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Now, Solomon's the king saying this. He's the king saying this. Happy are you when your king takes his responsibilities seriously. When he's not enriching enriching himself off the fat of the land, but he's feasting for strength and not for drunkenness. When he's acting like the son of nobility and not like a child. That got Solomon out of bed. Others depend upon my labor. The second thing that's kind of funny, reason to get out of bed, and this is kind of a funny one. I don't think you'd hear this in church often. Uh, you need money. A dad would probably say this to their kid. <laughs> a reason to get out of bed in the morning, Solomon literally says, is because the roof is leaking and it's not going to fix itself. You heard your dad say that to you? It's not going to fix itself? That, he says, although through, th- through oh, speech impediment, through, th- read it with me. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Not the most spiritual messages, right? You're like, but it's real. He says, why get out of bed? Because you need money, and the roof's not going to fix itself. Solomon's a realist. That's what I'm saying. He is a realist when it comes to life. The third one... (laughs) This is how I put it. Merely complaining about the inequalities of life does not make them go away. What do we do in our generation when we see all these inequalities and rottenness of life? We stay in our bed, we get on our phone, and we go on Twitter, or X as it's now called, and we complain. That's, that's what we do. And I used to love it because Twitter used to be this little bird, right? So read this passage with me. It's kind of funny. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in their bedroom curse the rich. For the bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. I just thought this passage was hilarious back when Twitter was a little bird. (laughs) It's like, here I am in my bed just complaining about life, and my thoughts are going to get me canceled. (laughs) That's basically what he's saying. The king's going to hear. You're cursing the king, you're cursing God, you're cursing life. 
and it's doing you no good. It's actually doing you harm. So get out of bed and do something. Whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your body. The world's filled with complainers. Solomon is saying like that itself. It might bring you trouble. So here's his strategy. Three things, his strategy. First thing, great. He, Solomon actually is now going to give a pathway out of this, a little bit of a pathway out of, of this breath. Uh, uh, you know, like there, there's a breath there. There's a lot of the perplexities of life, a lot of the difficulties of life. Now he's going to be like, here's some things you can, you can do. Here's some things you can do to get, to get through this. Number one, verse, uh, Ecclesiastes, now we're into chapter 11. Be patient with your investments and give generously to people. Be open-handed. I mean, part of the theme of Ecclesiastes is that the hands are important in Ecclesiastes. It's like, you know, receive from the hand of the Lord. This is the posture of Ecclesiastes. Is, is just that breath, whatever you have, whatever God is doing to make things beautiful in his time, you receive it with an open hand. Contentedness with your lot. You receive from the hand of God. And let me tell you, if I have an open hand to receive, I also have an open hand to give. Because it's not mine. It's received from the Lord. It's not mine anyway. And I've spread it around. He says, cast your bread upon the waters. Spurgeon said you do this because if you hoard it, it's going to grow maggots. It's going to get moldy. So you, you, you receive what you have and you give it to others because it's a gift. It wasn't because you were so strong or wise or swift. And it wasn't because you had such a great idea that everybody listened to you and gave you the credit for it. Right? He's already talked about that. If you've received, it's because the Lord has chosen, chosen to bless you with it. And so cast your bread upon the waters after you'll find it for many days. Give a portion to seven, even to eight, for you don't know what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. If a tree falls to the north or south, and the place where the tree falls, there it lies. It just says, listen, just give. Receive and give. It's a good way to live. It's a good way to live, because if it's about what I accumulate, if it's about the acclaim I get, I'm going to get frustrated. I receive. I work hard. I receive the, re the fruit. From the hand of the Lord. Now, cast your bread upon the waters. Most interpreters regard this as an exhortation to charity. I mean, who watched It's a Wonderful Life recently? Oh man, we need more people watching It's a Wonderful Life. Favorite Christmas movie. I mean, it, this is a guy who in his life, sometimes uh, reluctantly, but he's a, life, he's, he's a man who spends his life just casting his bread upon the waters, trying to do good trying to live for others, even when he himself wants not, he wants to leave the town. He wants nothing to do with his father's business, which is extending you know, loans to people who, who, need, who want to build houses and things. And circumstance, time and chance happen to him. And he doesn't meet any of his dreams. None of his dreams come true. He just spends his life just doing the right thing at the right time most of the time. And he gets to a point where he's really frustrated because he's, he's running into the breathiness of life and he's running into that perplexity and he's running into this fact that his life is coming to ruin even though he's trying to do the right thing. And anyway, spoiler alert, I mean, it was, the movie's like 90 years old, so. Spoiler alert. 
he who has spent his life casting his bread upon the waters and, and giving to seven, even eight, at the end of the movie, his friends hear he's in trouble. And everyone who he's spent his life just casting bread toward comes back. And this line at the end here, remember that no one is a failure who has friends. It's really powerfully delivered in the, in the movie as, as the return comes in an unexpected way as his friends help him out. It's a great, it's a great movie, but it seems to be Solomon's idea is, listen, we, nothing is guaranteed in life. You don't know where the wind is going to come, the rain's going to come. You don't know where the tree is going to fall. I mean, some of you guys had that, that tornado we had the other week, and the tree just fell on your shed or on your fence or on your house. You don't know when that tree is going to come, when it's going to fall. You don't know what calamity is going to hit. So receive and give. And in a community like this, this is what God has put us into, the church family. And I've seen, actually, I love, I love I'm on your Facebook, you know, I'm part of your community as well, and I, I see how even in your church you say, hey, we have a new family coming, they need a bed. Right? Or, or, hey, somebody's car broke down. They need a ride to work next week. You know, and that's how we take care of one another in the family and the household of God. It's a beautiful thing. So first, just have that open hand to receive and to give. Second, trust God to overcome fear. Trust God to overcome fear. Verse 4, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. You know, like you look outside and you go, oh, it might rain. I'm not going to work today. If, you have, if that's what you do, you will never do anything. I mean, we, we live in a generation where people are saying, I don't know if I, I want to have kids or bring kids into the world because I see the world as being a tough place. Well, if, if that's your logic, you'll never get out of bed to do anything. Life is risk and life is hard. That's Solomon's point. But life is beautiful. And life is even short, so even the hardness will go. You don't know the way the Spirit comes to the bones and the wombs of a woman with child, and also so you don't know the work of God who makes everything. Well, I love it. He's bringing God into this. This is like the first time in the whole chapter he brings God into this. To say, listen, you could look out the window and, and life could terrify you and you'll never do anything. But you do not know what God has in store. That's the point. Life is the breath, but it's the breath of God. The spirit, breath and spirit, the same thing, right? We don't know which way the spirit, the breath will go. But we know it's from God's hands. And he can make beauty out of this brokenness. That's the difference of faith. That's the difference between, I was talking to a friend and, and her daughter, uh, just got a um, diagnosis of breast cancer. And we were just talking about how, how a diagnosis like that can lead to different responses to different people. And this idea of whether or not you get a diagnosis from that and that leads you into your bed and you never get out of your bed because you just say life is meaningless, life is, it's, we're done here. Like it's over, it's curtains. Or you get a diagnosis like that and you say, okay, by God's grace, I'm going to make the most of every day and I'm going to fight because this is the life he's given me. And I don't know what the results of it are going to be, but I'm going to trust him and I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to keep working. That's two different responses. And I know even in the same person, you might go day to day fighting between those two responses, right? 
But this is why Ecclesiastes is a great joy-inducing, life-infirming book. Because you begin to see there's beauty in all of these things. And finally, and, and this is probably the theme that came out this whole thing. Continue to work hard and leave the results to God. In the morning, he says in verse 6, In the morning sow your seed, and at the evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. He, he kind of wraps up with what he says at the beginning. Whatever your hand finds to do, work hard. Now he says, whatever time you're in, work hard, and leave the results to God. You don't know. You don't know what's going to end up in the good. Trust in the Lord and receive from his hand. And when I was in college, I, I was part of this men's group who, um, we were a service group, so we would try to go around the city and do good works, like fixing people's sheds and stuff like that. And we had to memorize this verses, Galatians 6, 9, and 10. And it's still, I'll tell you, in our ministry the last four years, things have been hard, hard, hard. In fact, I'm getting a call from the hospital right now, so I don't, I'll go and figure out what that is after I, I finish. Um, because life's hard, and we were dealing with vulnerable people in our city and it's tough. People going into relapse, and with that you go, turn this off. With that you go, uh, God, when are we going to see the fruit of this? And sometimes you go, what's the point? I love this. Galatians 5, 7, we'll finish here. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows he will also reap. Now, he's not speaking about a success principle. He goes on to say, he's speaking of what you sow. The one who sows to his own flesh will, from the flesh, reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. And here's a verse. Let us not become weary of doing good. For at the proper time, we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. So therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Keep fighting. Keep going. Leave the results to God. And the last thing I'll leave you with is this. Life is short. Life is beautiful. Receive from his hand. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um, we thank you, God, for a sobering message. <laughs> wakes us up and slaps us in the face, Lord. And you do that with life. You're trying to get our attention through all of these things, Lord. You are, you are seeking through even the difficulties, the shortness of life, Lord, to get our attention that we might come before you. And finally, Lord, just receive. Surrender at your feet and receive from your hand. And I pray for anybody in here, God, who, yes, who was on the, or is maybe on the verge of giving up whether it's giving up in their family, giving up in their career, even giving up in life. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you give them the faith and the strength to just receive what the day brings as a gift from your hand and to wake up tomorrow and to do the same. We give you thanks and praise, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.